Well, this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The text is there. Our passage is, uh, is a hymn about Jesus uh, that was used by the early church. And the way that this passage is printed here in the bulletin, uh, it, it sort of brings out the, uh, the lines of the hymn starting there in verse 6. Uh, and this is how it shows up in my Greek New Testament. So I um, thought I'd just sort of replicate it there. Uh, it's, it's an important passage, Philippians 2. It's one of my favorite passages. Uh, we've actually looked at it a few times over the years. And we use it regularly in our worship as a profession of faith. And I'm glad that uh, we get to look at it together uh, this Christmas morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, help us, renew us, change us by your spirit in every good way as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So God and his ways are inconceivable to sinners. Apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh, uh, none of this business about unity and love and sympathy and humility would make any sense at all. The foundation for society in a world like this, in a world of sinners, the foundation for society is sin which is a terrible foundation for society. In fact, sin can only ever establish a false society, an illusion of society. Selfish ambition, conceit, self-interest, these are at the roots of the world. This is at the root of how the world lives apart from God. These are basic assumptions about how the world works. Selfish ambition, conceit, self-interest, you know, this is... These are even basic assumptions about how the world should work. You're supposed to look out for number one. You've got to look out for number one. And everybody knows without being told who number one is, it's oneself. You've got to look out for yourself. That's how the world works. In our self-centeredness, we have cobbled together a way to appear to get along in society, at least sometimes. 
But any apparent unity that has self-interest at its core will easily disintegrate like a tree with rotten roots. And, and now, now, because Jesus has made God known, because Jesus has renewed our relationship to the true God, now such things as humble love are actually a possibility for the people of God. <clears throat> because our society, our community in the church, has been built on different foundations, we have new roots, we have new connections to the God who is at the heart of all things, and this renews everything in our lives together as his people. So last night at our Christmas Eve gathering, we remembered that the Son of God was sent into the world to grant us his own relationship with the Father, right? So we quoted from Irenaeus, he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. And this means the gift of his own sonship, his own relationship with the Father, and his own inheritance. And it means a real change to the way that we live in this world, especially a change to our relationships in the church. Jesus came to share his own mindset with us. Jesus came to share his own approach to life and his own resource for life with us. Jesus came to share his own ways of relating, his own love with his people. Jesus is God. And his coming into the world means that we can know what God really is like, and it means we can really come to live like him. That's basically all this passage is saying. Paul is simply calling the church to live like Jesus in relationship with each other. But that is an impossible calling to something like an utter transfiguration that's grounded in an astonishing revelation of God. To live like Jesus has always been utterly foreign to this world because this world has been utterly out of step with God. We've preferred the self-centered way of sin rather than the other-oriented way of the triune God of love We've preferred it so much so <clears throat> that we can't even understand God. And we can't even understand his ways. Let alone can we incorporate his ways into our relationships with each other, apart from God himself coming into the world to make himself known and to renew us in his image. And this is what we have in this hymn about Jesus. It's the wonderful surprise of God made known and the significance of of this for our relationships in the church, where we've all been on a trajectory toward disintegration of relationships, disintegration of society, in our self-centeredness. Now, in Christ, we have a new possibility opened up to us. Paul says to the church, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you live by faith in the incarnate Son of God, then you'll be able to do what is impossible for sinners to do. You'll, you'll be able to enjoy a harmonious unity in the church characterized by humble love, to some degree. So he says in verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, or that word can be translated communion or fellowship, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, well, of course, that's a big if. If these things are real, that's a big if. None of this would exist apart from the grace of God, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are these wonderful things. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from God's love, fellowship in the Spirit. And Paul is inviting us to believe that and to appreciate 
the miraculous reality of these things to begin to live more and more with these as the new core of our lives, the new core of our relationships with each other. So he continues, if these things are real, then complete or fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. And that, uh, that word can be translated being together in soul and of one mind. <clears throat> so that sounds like relationships the way they should be. The way we wish they could be if we dared ho- hope for such things. It sounds delightful. Yes, of course, this would complete the joy of someone who loves the things of God. And this is the new reality for the church in Christ. But you can't ultimately be self-centered and have this kind of unity. Not really. So twice, Paul makes this important contrast between self-centeredness and humble love. He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that word conceit is uh, vainglory. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see that contrast twice. The self-centered person is fixated on his own interests. He's enslaved to them, looking to advance his own agenda, advance his own reputation over and against other people. For sinners, at the end of the day, selfish interests will always win the competition against the interests of other people. Christian morality is relational. It has to do with our relationship to God and to each other, and it's summed up in love. But the self-centered sinner is ultimately antisocial, anti-relational, anti-love in favor of self-love. And that's natural to all of us as sinners by definition, but there's this alternative. Now, because of the gospel, we really can humbly consider others more significant. We really can prioritize the interests of others in our lives. We really can be set free from the slavery of self-love, set free to truly love others selflessly, even as God does. So this new way of relating to others, it has to center on Jesus himself. Because he's the only one who truly loves as God loves. So verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is, uh, this is vicarious language. Uh, this is the language of faith in Jesus. The language of living his life in him. Living his life through him. So Paul isn't just saying, you know, Jesus sets a good example for you. Imitate it. what he's saying is deeper than that. He's saying Jesus has this mindset. And now so do you. This new way of living that is at the core of who Jesus is, is also yours now because his mindset is yours when you're in him by faith. When you dwell in him and abide in him by faith. And here's the best part. The description of this new mindset that we have in this great hymn, here's, here's the roots of it. In verse 6, uh, verse 6 through 8, talking about Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So it's absolutely necessary. This is, I mean, I think it's the most important part of this, this passage. Uh, it's absolutely necessary to understand properly how verse 6 begins. Because it sets the tone for everything that Paul is saying with this hymn. The way that it's translated in the ESV, um, I think, conveys the wrong connotation. The ESV says, uh, though he was in the form of God, he did these things. And that makes it sound almost like Paul is saying, you know, even though he was God, he did these things. Or, or worse, in spite of being God, he became incarnate and did these things. As if doing what he did in the incarnation were somehow contrary to his divine nature. As if condescending to become a human was out of character for God. Setting aside his divinity to do something like this. As if pouring himself out for us in extreme humble love was somehow incompatible with what it means to be God. It is incompatible with our conception of God. But the good surprise of the gospel is that Jesus reveals that such humility as is demonstrated in incarnation, this humility accords perfectly with God's character. Do not think that God humbled himself in spite of the fact that he was God. That contradiction only makes sense if God were somehow naturally self-centered like we are. But in reality, uh, that idea, that's just a projection of ourselves onto him, a projection that couldn't be further from the truth. God is not self-centered by nature, and here is the proof of it. He really was willing to enter in a state of utter humiliation for us. He was willing to do that. If I were in God's place, I would never do that. I'd never stoop so low. I'd never so totally and completely live for other people. Words like this that describe Jesus here, obedience, service, self-emptying, humility, wouldn't even be found in my vocabulary. I'd certainly never suffer, suffer abject humiliation and death for others. I'd never do it because I'm not like him. I'm me. I'm number one. And that means a self-centered sinner. That's why it's so difficult to understand God. We're so unlike him, and we are bound to project ourselves onto him, defining him by our own understanding of what deity must mean. The self-exalting kind of deity that we grasp for. But he reveals who he really is. He reveals what he's really like in his son, in Jesus. So here's the key to understanding this great Christological hymn of God's glorious humility and God's self-giving love. The participle there in verse 6 gets translated simply and literally and directly as just being. Not though he was in the form of God, but being in the form of God. And in case that word form uh, makes you think that somehow this is just an external appearance, it just seems like he's sort of God-shaped or whatever, that word really could be translated nature. Being in the nature of God. Being in the character of God. Being in the nature of God. Being truly the God that he is, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Mind blown. That Jesus is God, and his divine nature means he doesn't clutch at status. He doesn't mind lowness. 
He is the kind of God who does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus reworks our definition of God. Leslie Newbegin says, All ideas about what the word God means must be tested by what is to be seen in the words and deeds of this totally humble and obedient man. Being the God that he is, he emptied himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Being the God that he is, he became obedient to the point of death, even that most terrible, most humiliating death, the death on the cross. Being the God that he is, He entered into our world of sin. He took our evil on his own shoulders to the cross to atone for it. Being the God that he is, he looked at us, at unfaithful people who broke our relationships with him and with everybody else, at miserable sinners who broke the whole wonderful world that he had made. He looked at us and he said, I'll fix it. And he went to the utmost lengths and depths of love and sacrifice. Being the God that he is, he saw us disintegrating in our self-centeredness. And he knew that the only way that we could join him in the joy of his love was if he gave himself to us, gave himself for us in spite of ourselves. Being the God that he is, he chose to be with us, even though we would kill him when he got here. Being the God he is, he endured the torment and the public shame, and he loved unwaveringly And he gave unreservedly to the utmost end. So Karl Barth said, God is always God, even in his humiliation. God is always God, even in his humiliation. He didn't stop being God with the incarnation or at any point in Jesus' life or death. God didn't cease to be himself or go against his nature in doing these things. God didn't step out of character to become human, to serve, to suffer and to die. His divine nature is truly seen in the fact that he became this man, Jesus. His divine nature is truly seen in the fact that he went to this end, the end of the cross. Being the God that he is, he did this. So in fact, that that participle in verse 6, being, you you could translate it, uh, because he is. Because he is this God. Far from giving us the idea that God became incarnate even though he's God, We should get the idea that God became incarnate because he is God. This is the answer to the most important question anyone could ever ask. Why would God do all of this? Why would God come into this world and live this kind of life? Why the incarnation of the Son of God? Why Jesus? Because God is the God that he is. And that means good news. And that means love. Why the incarnation? Because he wanted to. He wanted to be with us. Why the incarnation? Because in the absolute freedom of his love, he could do it and he chose to do it. Because this kind of humble, sacrificial love is the true nature of his inconceivable holiness. So what Eve read from our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 57 Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive 
the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus did just what we needed him to do. He took humanity, he reworked it, refashioned it in God's image. He lived a human life just like God himself would do it. And that is characterized by humble love for the sake of relationships. Jesus did his father's will and he represented his father as the true son should. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory. True glory isn't the self-seeking, conceited, vainglory that we find in verse 3. The empty glory that sinners imagine it to be. True glory is the glory of this God that we see in Jesus Christ, the humble, other-oriented, self-emptying kind of glory. This is what God affirms for all to know in the resurrection of Christ, in the exaltation of Christ, that this is true glory, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the perfect image of God. The humble love of Christ is what resounds in the halls of heaven. The obedient sacrifice of Christ is the divine resonance pattern. He is the greatest of all because he made himself the servant of all. And all will know it and all will confess that he is Lord, that his kind of lordship is true lordship. His glory, true glory. His way of life, the true way of life. In the incarnation, God has taken our humanity up into true glory, which is, of course, what he had planned for us all along. Our self-centeredness hasn't stopped him from loving us, from doing what's best for us, which means fixing us and making us to love like he loves. And he makes this change in our lives by opening up the life of Christ to us, by giving us the very mind of Christ himself, that we can participate in his life vicariously through his spirit. This is a joyful prospect for us. Paul says it would complete his joy to see the church living the very life of God by faith in Christ. The triune God who's at the heart of the universe is these persons who have this wonderful, harmonious unity in considering each other more significant than self. And now, in Christ, we've been refashioned in this God's likeness. We're meant to have unity in the same way God does, through other-oriented love, through his spirit. Even though we made ourselves miserable in our selfish ambition and in our conceit and in our vainglory, his joyful love was too strong to leave us in that misery. He came to renew and remake what was broken through our sin, to welcome us back into the image of the true God, to give us his own mind about things, his own spirit, his own joyful love. So when the Son of God came in human flesh, he made our humanity new. Why? Because that's who he is. And that means humble love. This glorious Lord didn't mind lowness himself, so you don't have to mind lowness. Because he was obedient, you may be obedient. Because he served, you may serve. Because he was humble, you may be humble. Because he poured himself out for love's sake, so you also may pour yourself out for love's sake. In him, we see that humility 
is godly. Humility is godlike. Counting others more significant than ourselves is godlike. Looking to the interests of others is godlike. Obedience and giving your life for others is godlike. If you want to be like the one true God, then embrace the life and ways of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making yourself truly known in Jesus. We pray that you would set us free from the lies that we've believed about what you must be like. These instinctive lies about how the world must work. We pray that you would captivate us with the ways of your son, your true ways. Your son who would stoop so low, sinners raising, through his own incarnation and life of service and sacrificial death. Captivate us by Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of lords. Even in your humiliation, you are God. You're the perfect revelation of divine glory, and you have opened up to us the life of God. And it would be the fullness of joy to see your own humble love manifested among us. So we pray that you would help us through the fellowship of your spirit to become truly interested in the good of each other, even above our own good. We pray these things in your name. Amen.